0: There is nothing wrong with your podcast. Do not attempt to adjust the sound. We are controlling this transmission. If we wish to make it louder, then we will so. Because you are within the reaches of The Film File. The film show for film geeks by Film Geeks. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford.
1: And I'm Andy Beacon.
0: Hello and welcome. And yes, it is time to put an hour and a half out of your life and enjoy just some film geekery. Andy, are you well?
1: I am, but I know you're not at the moment. You're <laughs> a bit under the weather, aren't you?
0: I am. You know I am. I'm, I'm here I'm, for
1: the next one and a half hours. To I'm
0: here for about 10 minutes. Raise your spirits.
1: <laughs> and, you know, Make make you feel one with the
0: world again. I am. I don't know. I <laughs> just got hit by something and just not, not feeling 100%. And it's been a bit like that for both of us over the last couple of weeks. I think we've both been on a bit of a swings and roundabouts of how we're feeling but you know nothing can stop me whether i'm in another country whether i'm in another time zone whether i'm in just a man out of time nothing <laughs> will stop me bringing the film file to you
1: i think the encroaching of the um, change of the seasons
0: yeah there's a lot helping. of that in mean, there I
1: me mean, this morning heading to work man it was freezing wow there's a brass monkey crying his eyes out in the gutter that's how bad it was
0: it has got colder <laughs> colder and darker
1: very dark it's that time of year that anything will hit you because you're, you know, you, you're colder, your immune system starts going, mm. yeah, I don't like to work in this weather. And I'd also been
0: reading that colds are on the up because we have been basically uh, shielding ourselves, shielding <laughs> ourselves. Yeah. And so cold strains didn't get a chance to get a hold over the last couple of years properly. And now they're sort of digging in again, going, hey, we're back. Forget all that COVID nonsense. Yeah. deal with this so uh yeah i think i think colds and flus uh apparently on the on the rise which is disappointing because um there have been some worrying figures for the rise of covid again yeah not what the government would expect you to believe but uh, there have been a lot of people i know are coming down with it again
1: yeah uh, there's been a, a burst of them uh work that we've known about that you know we've had members of staff t- and you know, even though they don't have to these days because the government rulings say that if you're fine to work, you can still go into work. Thankfully, we've got some very, you know, caring and considerate members of the team who are basically saying, well, no, I don't want to pass it on to people, so I'm going to stay at home for a few days. Uh, it's the right way to do it. But the government would have more, are more a case of like, well, we're not going to pay you anything, uh, so you just need to go to work and carry on with things. Soldier on, stiff up a lip, the English way, tot, yeah. tot, righty. Oh, But yeah, you know, Whilst every every time that someone's phoned in and just gone, yeah, um, I think I've got COVID, and then they send me through a photo of the test, just like, cheers, cheers for letting us know, thanks for not coming in. I don't want to catch it again.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I've had it once. I know how it hit me, and I'm multiple jabbed. I don't want to be hit again. No. So I'm trying to avoid it where I can. Uh, but there are some good. There are some positives. There are.
0: Should we talk about uh, something? I think we both discovered we've got a positive for.
1: Well, before we talk about that positive thing, oh, okay. I just want to quickly mention: Have you seen Miriam Margulies' outburst on BBC Radio Four today? No, show?
0: but I've I've heard. Well, I it was on Twitter, but the specifics I don't I, I don't know. But but saying that, if you want to book Miriam Margulies for something and expect her <laughs> you know not to be outspoken, get. then you're booking the wrong Miriam Margulies.
1: It was brilliant. I'm not going to recite it here because we do like, even though we occasionally delve into a bit of na- naughty language, we don't like to go too far because we do like to think that we're a 12A rated radio show. <laughs> but um, she was talking about Jeremy Hunt in, uh, and said that she wished him luck, but then used a word that kind of rhymes with luck to actually say what she wanted to say to him. And it, I, I was in stitches when I heard it. And it's the fact that it went out live and like uh, that the host of the Today Show was like, oh, well, I've got to ask you to leave the studio now and they're laughing about it, but you could tell that he was really nervous. And this is it. It's like either the researcher who got her on for that show didn't have a clue who she was or they knew
0: exactly what they were getting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's either naivety or we're just playing the game.
1: Because I'm listening to her autobiography because I'd started on yeah, it a few said. months ago, um, but then got distracted by another book. And I've jumped back onto that, realising I've already got like about halfway through it. And even her autobiography is magnificent. It's well worth checking out. She's such a character. And she's had such an interesting life as well. And there's a lot of revelations that mean she hates the Monty Python crew. Oh, she hates them with a passion. Because uh, she was at Footlights alongside a few of them. And she said that they were some of the worst people that she's ever met in her life. Uh, But she's so outspoken. And that's what you get from Mary Marley's. And that's why I adore her. She is everything that she showcases. Farts and all marvellous but moving away from thoughts let's talk about She-Hulk.
0: Yes well I was a, a couple of days in before I'd watched it so I was starting to see uh, reviews pop up across line and I'm trying my best to ignore them trying to to be spoiler free so I thought I'm, I'm gonna have to watch it I'm gonna have to get into this ASAP and uh, I'm I'm so glad I did it is probably one of the most No, not the most meta thing I've ever seen, but one of the most (laughs) meta things I've ever seen. There have been similar kind of endings, and it made me think of stuff like Saturday Night Live or even Monty Python. Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles, absolutely. Um, I thought it was very bold. I thought it it took aim upon itself uh, and the knowingness, things that we've discussed on the show. uh, While um, while it didn't uh, address them, It's certainly brought up a lot of the arguments that's out there in the world right now. And I thought it's very brave. I had nothing to lose.
1: Uh, Yeah, the head writer, Jessica Gow, said that a lot of the conversation between Jen and K-E-V-I-N was based on actual conversations that she'd actually had with Kevin Feige. Right. And yeah, she she could have made that scene even longer with all the things, all the complaints that she said about the Marvel formula with him that he's listened to and acknowledged. She was basically ad verbatim and she could have gone on for about 10, 15 minutes. But um, (laughs) she said that that what we were left with was probably the tightest version of what it could be. There were a couple of jabs where Kevin was like, okay, this is a little mean now. And I love that. And I love that Marvel basically opened up and went, yeah, we stick to a formula too much, and maybe yeah. we need. They acknowledged all the flaws that the fan base occasionally say and the negative criticisms. And that's what the She Hulk series was all about. It was all about criticisms of Marvel online yeah. from either the fans or the people who hate on Marvel for no reason at all. It confronted it from start to finish. We should have expected this for the ending, not some big, like, you know, Ma- Monster SmackDown which uh, we kind of all suspected to be a monster smackdown, but it wasn't about that. It was about fandom and I love it for it. And that fourth wall breaking, it gave me another proud dad moment because I was sat watching it with my daughter and when it pops up to the Disney screen and she pops it out and starts climbing between panels and my daughter just went like, this is just from like the comic when she goes from like page to page or jumps from panel to panel. It's like, I know. I'm so proud of you at this point in time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we'd seen that, hadn't we? We'd seen uh, people a few reactions on Twitter. Yeah, we, I think we both addressed them going, hey, look, guys, if you'd not read the John Byrne uh, uh, initial run, where I think he she confronts, she goes to the Marvel officers,
1: Yeah, she confronted Byrne for the sloppy writing at times. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, she stormed into the offices and that was literally what we were seeing. We were seeing that represented in TV format. I didn't think they'd do it. I'm so pleased they did. It does make it that, you know, is She-Hulk actually in the MCU or not? We don't know now. She's definitely aware that the MCU exists. Well, Deadpool's I mean, going to they, be so easy to drop into the MCU now because if uh, she's just fourth wall broken more than Deadpool ever has.
0: Well, they did that. They did that in the comics. And then that's the thing. If you're using the comics as your starting point, then you're covering your bases because She-Hulk yeah. she would do that in her own series. She'd break the fourth wall. She would uh, talk directly to the reader. She'd, she'd talk directly to her creators. But then you'd see her in the Avengers where none of those things would happen. Or you would see her in further series when they played it straight. Yeah. So that's that's the whole thing with comics, and that's what I think they're picking up with is that they they know that you can do anything. It's like Daredevil. Devil's going to be back. Yeah. In his own show, and it's going to be straight, and it's going to be more Daredevil, uh, and it doesn't matter that he was in She Hulk and 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 being part of this this craziness that was going on i thought it, it was so true to its its comic book origins um you know and if you haven't read them read the dan slot stories read mm-hmm. the john Byrne stories because this is they, they did it there first yeah but i think she is so good tatiana masali is brilliant yeah in everything i mean from orphan black uh she was in the reboot of uh, perry mason uh, um, last year or year before and she was excellent in that she's such an amazing screen talent and because of that you buy it That's, you buy I've, her integrity all the way through she plays it straight
1: I have seen people comment online that the only the only thing that is difficult to believe in the whole of the She-Hulk series is that Tatiana Maslany finds it difficult to get a boyfriend
0: <laughs> uh, well yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, yeah I mean she's so lovely and she is so super talented, uh, a super talented actor yeah. uh, in everything that she's been in. But yeah, I, I it was it was just skillfully put together, uh, and it made me smile with a big silly smile. I absolutely absolutely loved it. I, I can't wait for Daredevil, uh, as I've said yeah. many times, my favorite character, uh, and it was my neat thing last week. And uh, you know, when Daredevil turns up in his own series, it'll be Daredevil in his own series. But this is what. Yeah. This is what the comics were like. Yeah. It's exactly, you'd have Marvel team up comic where it didn't matter. You had Red Sonja appear in one. You had Conan yeah. in one. It, it, it's it's taking it's, its ideas directly directly from the printed pages. Loved it. It's
1: been a brilliant series and a great, a great different, this is what I love about the Marvel shows is that they're being more creative. They're doing things that they wouldn't normally do. This is, this is what they should be using the TV for.
0: Had a blast. Uh, Talking of shows, what have we got in this week's show? Well, Andy and I are going to be doing our Halloween run deep dive into Poltergeist. Directed by Toby Hooper. Question mark, did he really direct it? Andy's going to be giving us reviews for...
1: Halloween Ends that landed at cinemas this week. Catherine Called Birdie, which landed on Amazon over the past week. I so want
0: to see that, which I know is a spoiler for later on that I've not seen it. But I (laughs) so, so want to see that.
1: And as promised, I got to watch Ty West's X, which landed on Amazon last week. So, And I, I only found
0: there. out yesterday that that had landed on Prime. And I'm so looking forward to seeing that too. Again, I've spoiled it, I've not seen it. It's Andy's great work that you'll be listening to. But before any of that, of course, from the team who put the new in news, we've got some news. And of course, we're going to start with this week's box office.
1: So as expected, on both sides of the pond this weekend, it's been horrors that have done pretty well. Over in the US, Halloween Ends opened this weekend to £40.1 million. It's a drop off from what the previous two entries have done, but it's still a solid start for a low-budget horror. Smile retained second place in the US with £12.6 million this weekend. It's now on a worldwide total of 137 million, just touching on 138 million. A very successful outing for a new horror. Lion, Lau Crocodile, horrific to some. Uh, the family, family entertainment film took 7.4 million, putting it into third place. It's struggling to properly find an audience worldwide at the moment. The Woman King, 3.7 million, holding in at fourth place. And Amsterdam, star-packed but inevitably disappointing film. Scraped another two point eight million, keeping it in fifth. Here in the UK, Halloween ends again. Took the top spot with two point one million pounds. Lyle Lyle Crocodile brought the families in this weekend, taking one point seven million. If you add on the previews from the previous weekend, it's now on two point seven million. Smile took one point four million to put it into third place. It's up to seven point two million in the UK. Ticket to Paradise took another six hundred seventeen thousand, and don't worry, darling. Still proving to find an audience with the UK public, only had a drop off of 40% on the previous week, 610,000 this week. It's almost up to 10 million in the UK alone, showing that despite the negative criticism around the film, sometimes people just want to check out to see what all the fuss was about.
0: So it's indicative of this time of year that this is the time to release low-budget scary movies because there is now a natural audience that will uh, will go and see it because i think halloween sort of transcended into something else hasn't it now it's become yeah. the month of october and if you're going to release a scary movie or some kind of horror movie now is the time because there is such a built-in audience it's like it is like it has become christmas isn't it
1: we've said before that horror films cost hardly anything to make they're usually below 20 million this is the time of year where even a week opening weekend will give them at least 18 million and then the rest of it will take them into profit. So it, it's it's an ideal time for it. And we know that Halloween has been released on streaming in the US as well. So it's interesting to see that that, like we've said, the audiences will still go back to the cinema because it had a strong, strong enough opening. They'll still, for a horror film, you need that audience participation. Whether you're finding it scary, whether you're screaming, whether you're laughing nervously, you don't get the same feeling when you're sat watching it on your own no. as you do when you're surrounded by an
0: audience. It's participatory, isn't it? You've got to participate. Become become a spectator to it.
1: Yeah. So moving away from the box office. What
0: have we got news-wise?
1: Well, kind of sticking with the box office, just want to mention that um, Wakanda Forever is currently tracking, uh, based on the pre-sales, to be opening at between 180 to 225 million opening weekend, which will place it higher than recent Marvel films. And it will be amongst the highest openings of all time, which are Avengers, which opened with $208 million, Jurassic World, $207 million, and Star Wars Last Jedi with $220 million. Where it'll fit within all them, we'll get to see, but that's a really good number. I mean, Marvel must have been worrying after their last lot of films that maybe our bubble has burst, mm-hmm. but Wakanda looks like it's going to bring those audiences back based on the pre-sales. The tickets went on sale last week worldwide. We can start to see whether it's going to then there's going to be sellouts across the board,
0: and you've seen the new trailer clearly.
1: Yes, um, I, yeah, I'm in, I, I'm in anyway because it's a Marvel film, but yeah. that new trailer more than sells it to anyone who's still skeptical about what they can do.
0: I just want to say, say, my moment of joy was seeing Namor yes, with the little wings yes. on his feet. Yes. And I never thought of this because uh, it's a cool way of doing it. I always, in my head, uh, Namur always used those little wings to sort of glide but they were like they were like uh, uh insect wings or hummingbird yeah. wings you know flapping really quickly so you couldn't see them to keep him up I, <laughs> yeah. it was a moment of joy that uh, the the same way i can only describe it is when hawkeye pops up in thor and you go oh my god oh my god it's thor it was like that <laughs> that's such a moment of geekery um i like the fact and and it still draws speculation that we don't know who is beneath the mm-hmm. uh, panther helmet Uh, It could be at this point, it could be Shuri, it could be, it could even be the Queen.
1: Yeah, they're they're keeping the mystery there. Uh, And I I think that they need to keep mysteries. We don't want things spoiled all the time. We need trailers. Marvel are so skilled at doing their trailers that they have misdirection or they'll have alternate scenes. So we don't even know if all those scenes will be in the film in that way. It's clever marketing. They've generated enough buzz. They've given you an idea of what the film's going to be and who's going to be in it. I can't wait. I am so looking forward to this film. I'm so there. It's going to be a, it's going to be a great November release.
0: I know, I know. But, we get to see it. I hope you and I get to see it because it's it's it seems part of our pattern that you and I should both get to see should both watch a Marvel film together.
1: Yeah. Um, sp- sticking with Marvel, the rumor that we had of Harrison Ford being cast as General Ross looks like it might be true. Mm-hmm. As a bit of it's now got other sources who've um, reported on it. That the original rumor came from the Anklers, Jeff Snyder. He hinted at the talks between harrison ford and marvel a few weeks back Uh, apparently he's going to pop up in captain america new world order and is likely to play a big role in the thunderbolts and slash film have claimed to have confirmed the news so whilst there's still no official word from the marvel stables on this it's certainly looking very likely that harrison ford great bit of casting to take over the role of general ross
0: yeah as we know the thunderbolts are built around yeah. general ross it's his uh it's his eighteen almost
1: it's his team so they use his uh thunderbolt ross nickname and other rumors about casting in marvel and this one needs to be taken with a bit bit of a pinch of salt for the moment the character that we've been constantly convinced was behind everything in every tv series <laughs> mephisto yes, has apparently been cast and will appear in ironheart mm-hmm. now Ironheart introduces the Hood as a character, and the Hood got his powers through a deal with Dormammu. But apparently, they're reworking it to be that he made a bargain with Mephisto instead. And it's Sasha Baron Cohen who's apparently been a linked to the to, to the role. Now, this originated from one of the Reddit substrains, and I've spent, said my piece about Reddit substrains before. Now, that most of the time there's misinformation on there, so let's just have a huge pinch of salt. But
0: it's intriguing. I like the idea.
1: I'm kind I'm kind of in with Sasha Baron Cohen in that role. I yeah. can kind of see it. As long as he doesn't put on a Borat voice, it'll be fine. He's the kind of actor who just disguises himself into a role anyway. He's played so, screen
0: films before, so yeah. he can do it.
1: So I, I, let's see. Are we finally going to get Mephisto or is this going to be another one division moments where we go, oh, we thought it was going to happen and it didn't.
0: It wasn't Mephisto after all.
1: And it wasn't Mephisto in Loki. And it wasn't Mephisto. It's never been Mephisto, so he's probably never going to get cast anyway. <laughs> Disney has also overhauled a lot of its film
0: schedule. Yeah, some big shifts, aren't there?
1: Delayed quite a few Marvel projects by several months. Uh, this has all happened because, as we reported a few weeks ago, there's now delayed production on Blade after Basim Tarek, stepped away.
0: Let, let's get into that first, shall we? Let's get into um, yes. into Blade, because I think that's the linchpin on all of these. So rather than keep to the production date, search for a new director as they're doing it, pause button has been pushed, hasn't it? As the director search yes. continu- uh, continues, and the whole project kind of has this feeling of being overhauled, and there are various rumours as to what, where, and when.
1: It feels with them pushing everything back as a result of just one film that Blade is maybe very integral to the future of the Marvel Universe because Blade itself has now been delayed 10 months. It's now coming out September the 6th, 2024. Deadpool 3 has now shunted two months to November the 8th, 2024 and then we Fantastic 4 which was supposed to be at the end of 2024 is now February the 14th 2025 oh Valentine's Day <laughs> I'll I'll be I'll be in love with that film on Valentine's Day then an untitled Marvel film that we still don't know what it's about November the 7th 2025 which has been delayed 9 months and then Avengers Secret Wars has been delayed six months, taking it to May the 1st, 2026. So it's a huge jump.
0: So does that mean we're not getting three films a year now?
1: Uh, well, next year, we've still got Guardians of the Galaxy 3, The Marvels, yeah. and Quantumania. Right. So we've still got three next year, but then it's looking like two for the following year, two for the year after that, and then we don't know where it's going to go, 2026. This is what we said when when they announced all their slate, and this is the next five-year plan we said at that point in time like these probably will shift and change due to production yeah. things and this is the first one of them so don't expect these dates to stick if they do it's great cuz they're still nicely spread out but it does mean that the two avengers films will now not be released in the same year they'll be released one year apart so here we go let's let's just see what happens we're just waiting on news on blade but like i say we've still got three films coming out next year three hotly anticipated films as well but I'm sure that the TV shows that they've been greenlighting will fill the gaps
0: nicely. So what we do know is, and we reported this, that Bo DeMeo is on board to work on the script. Uh, he was a staff writer on uh, Moon Knight, yeah. and rumor has it that Marcella Ali uh, is now also involved in the script writing process as well. But as I say, that bit's just just talk at this moment in time until we get further confirmation on that.
1: Uh, We also now know that Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes will hit on May the 24th, 2024, and A Haunting in Venice will open on September the 15th, 2023. Um, And there's the historical drama from Searchlight opening April the 7th, 2023. So there's been a bit of a juggling of the slate. Now, with Blade moving away from that early November slot next year, Warner Brothers have jumped in. June 2, which was due out at the end of November next year, has now moved to that early November slot to give them a bit more of a lead-in over okay. the whole of... The, they basically own November now, which, to be honest, I don't blame them for doing it because uh, Warners need to get as much as they can get from everything yeah. at this point in time. We've spoken about their problems before. And speaking of problems with Warners, Black Adam's post credit scene has been leaked a week before release. Oh, really? Yes. Spoiling one reveal. I'm not going to say it here in case people have missed it, but it's basically spoiled a mid credits reveal. Given that the film has only been shown at the premiere, this has got to have been an insider leak. Yeah, and it's a bit shocking that something that is uh, it, it it feels like a, it feels like it could have been a deliberate cynical marketing leak in order to try to drum up more excitement for the film. Mm. That's all I'm going to say on the matter. I don't want to spoil anything for the people who've managed to avoid it, but I couldn't avoid it because it popped up on Twitter for me.
0: I, I thankfully have avoided it. I've got an inkling based on yeah. rumour and innuendo that's going out, but I, I've managed to avoid the actual giveaway. We'll be talking about the film once it's released, so uh, our reviews will be spoiler-free.
1: Will be spoiler-free as always. Um, Millennium Media's upcoming film adaptation of Robert E. Howard's Red Sonja has seen a slight casting change. Rona Mitra who we'll remember from Doomsday and The Last Ship and various other things, has signed on for an undisclosed role in the feature. Whilst at the same time, Oliver Trevena has exited the project. His role was Troll, who was um, supposed to be a warrior who joined Sonya in a crusade against an evil emperor. Whether or not Rona Mitra is now playing a gender-swapped version of the same character or a completely new character, we don't know at this point in time. But I've got time for Rona Mitra. Yeah. When it comes to action fests, well and truly up for it.
0: She needed just more, didn't she? She she ended up yeah. being in a lot of Z movies, and she had she sort of had her A movie potential. And even in fact, a few years back, she would have been sort of top of the list for Red Sonia.
1: Looking forward to Red Sonia. More news on that as it breaks. The Beekeeper we've spoken about, which is the Jason Statham film that's currently shooting in the UK, which is about one man's, of course, it's Statham. It's one man's brutal campaign for revenge. Uh, not 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 really stretching his... a. Uh, he needs <laughs> no he friends.
0: Means. He's just a one man, whatever. One man going down the shops, that would be Jason Statham movie.
1: <laughs> just going down, punching people and bed. As one man. As one man. Well, he's been joined now with by names such as Jeremy Irons, Josh Hutcherson, Emmy Raver lampman and Bobby Nadiri. But
0: don't worry, he's still one man.
1: It's still one man. He's playing a former clandestine ops who's um, out for revenge after he's been betrayed. David Ayer is directing it.
0: Yeah, no, never seen that script before.
1: No, and it's a script by Kurt Wimmer.
0: All right, I like Kurt Wimmer, to be honest.
1: Who um, gave us Salt, which, uh, you know, generic, but solidly, solidly written. So it might be a decent stay than Actioner, rather than a straight to Amazon one that we've had in recent years. Now, here's the one that I'm not sure how I feel about this one. Paramount have greenlit a reboot of the Naked Gun franchise. I knew this
0: was going to be your next story, because I feel exactly <laughs> the same way.
1: I, I'm kind of on board for it, but at the same time, I'm worried. Liam Neeson is set to star, which I think is perfect, perfect piece of casting, giving his uh, recent years' serious action revenge thrillers to actually have him playing the son of Frank Drebin. If he can play it straight like the great Leslie Nielsen played it, this could work
0: really well. See, that's the thing, is I watched uh, Airplane for the first time in, oh, donkey's years. I showed it the child. And everybody plays it straight. Robert Stack plays it yeah. absolutely straight. And that was the the joy of those movies. They got those tough guy actors in or they got those iconic leading men in and they played it. They played it without out any sense of irony. I think sort of some of the Naked Gun movies as they moved along started to wink a little bit more at the camera. But initially, yeah. Leslie Nielsen in Airplane plays it straight.
1: But uh, Seth MacFarlane and Erica Huggins are producing it. And the plot is under wraps, but we do know that Akiva Schaefer is directing it. And that is one of the things that makes me stay on board with it. Okay. But this is a film that has been rumored for quite a while. But Paramount, basically Paramount have all the money now, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So, they got the success of Maverick and they can just basically take risks on any projects with a bit of nostalgia on them. So this is that. this is how Paramount spend their spare cash by giving us a naked gun franchise back. <laughs> So moving on from that to something that, you know, there's one there's one name that if it's mentioned, you know that I'm there for, regardless what it is. And that's my beloved
0: Ryan Reynolds. Yes, you are so, uh, joined at the uh, imaginary hip to Ryan Reynolds. You're hip to Ryan.
1: Not only is there a trailer out there for his and Will Ferrell's um, Scrooge take that's coming out this Christmas, which I've not seen the trailer for because I don't need to because I'm in on yep. that film anyway. Uh, but we now know that he's also Ryan Reynolds is teaming up with Strange World writer and co-director Key Naguyan for a film adaptation of the Disney theme park attraction Society of Explorers and Adventurers. Naguyan is going to write the live action feature take with Reynolds producing through his maximum maximum effort banner with the plan being to launch a franchise with the project. And this is separate from Ron Moore's Magic Kingdom series, which is also based on the same idea. His take being the themed lands and characters of Disney parks and classic films existing in another reality. The film version is going to be set in present day, adding a new supernatural elements to the history and follow new characters not present in the original SAA law. And if that's not enough, Reynolds has revealed that his production company is also developing a documentary about the life of the late famed Canadian comedian, John Candy. Okay, that's interesting. John Candy, who sadly died at the age of 43, broke through in Ron Howard's splash, And he was beloved to people of our age for his roles in stripes, planes, trains, automobiles, cool runnings, Uncle Buck, National Lampoon's Vacation, Spaceballs, you name it. The guy drew us all in. Colin Hanks is on board the project with Reynolds warning fans to expect tears. Reynolds has previously produced the documentary The Whale, whilst Hanks is producing an upcoming documentary about Michael Jackson's thriller. So Ryan Reynolds is basically doing everything now. Ryan Reynolds now owns the world, and anyone who's watched <laughs> Re- Welcome to Wrexham knows that he deserves to own the world. We're just guests in Ryan Reynolds' world, and I'm happy to be that guest.
0: Hey, you mentioned earlier that Dune was getting a shifting date, but we also know that there is going to be Dune on the small screen. There's going to be a spin-off, uh, Dune, The Sisterhood. It seems that Indira Varma has been cast as Empress Natalia.
1: Yep, this series is going to explore, it's called The Sisterhood because it's exploring the history of the Bene Gesserits and all their religion and what you know, their influence within the Dune universe. And there's a lot that they can really tap into there. And the casting, the casting is what we're kind of expecting from something linked to uh, Villeneuve's Dune.
0: Indira in Varma is one of those actors who just turns up and always delivers. Solid work, and then you kind of go, "Oh, I I recognize her from dot 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 dot." Filling the gaps.
1: Yep. Let's keep an eye on this production. I'm hoping it's going to be a nice little, nice little side story to pad out that June universe for the people who aren't as absorbed into the books and the lore as uh, the geeks in us are. Um, Andy Circus's Imaginarium Company are teaming up with Urban Myth Films to adapt Robin Hardy's 1973 horror classic, The Wicker Man into a TV series.
0: Okay, I'd not heard that one. As soon as you mentioned Robin Hardy, it had to be The Wicker Man because I don't really know much about any of the film that Robin Hardy ever did.
1: Yes. Howard Overman, who gave us misfits, has penned the script and the rights have been acquired from Studio Canal to adapt the property with early pitching currently happening to potential broadcasters. For those who've never watched The Wicker Man, we're talking about the Edward Woodward and Christopher <laughs> Lee version. There
0: is no other version, Andy. It doesn't exist in this dojo.
1: If someone tells you that there's one out there with Nicolas Cage, do not, do not do seek not that approach. out. It's a, it might have tried to explore the same themes of sacrifice, superstition and rituals that were at the core, but it did such a bad job. Watch the original. It's a stunning film yes. about a group of islanders paying homage to the pagan Celtic gods of their ancestors. Great film, chilling, And still echoes down in other films, even Midsummer of recent years, is like a spiritual successor to The Wicker Man. A TV series?
0: I could see how they could explore the island in more detail in a TV series and and explore other characters within that. I I, I can see it. I can see how it works in a kind of the same way that Midnight Mass worked.
1: Yeah. And sticking with TV, uh, let's go back to Paramount, who have all the money. Um, Timothy Dalton has joined H- Helen Mirren and Harrison Ford in a prequel series called 1923, which is the prequel to the critically
0: acclaimed Yellowstone. Huge show in the States. Absolutely. I don't think we understand it in, in this side of the pond, just how big a show that is in the, in the US.
1: This new installment will introduce a new generation of the Dutton family in the early 20th century, when pandemics, historic drought and the end of Prohibition and the Great Depression all plagued the Mountain West. Dalton's going to play Donald Whitfield, a powerful, self-confident man who reeks of wealth and the lack of empathy it requires to attain it. He's intimidating, nefarious, and is used to getting what he wants. Um, I've not watched Yellowstone. This is a show that I've I've got bookmarked. I've got bookmarked on my Paramount Plus subscription, and I intend to watch it. And now that there's no other shows coming out at the moment, I'm going to jump on this to catch up with it, because I've heard so many good things. But there's some great names on this production. Brandon Skellner, Robert Patrick, Darren Mann, Sebastian Roche, Michelle Randolph, Mary Shelton. Huge names, great names, great cast. Mm. Emmy nominee, Lucy Liu. I've got time for Lucy Liu. Yeah. Uh, Has joined Amazon's action-adventure holiday comedy, Red One, which will star Dwayne Johnson, Chris Evans, and Kieran Shipka. This is the film that is dubbed as a globe-trotting four-quadrant action-adventure comedy, imagining a whole new universe to explore within the holiday genre, and will be incorporated into multiple industries and businesses in the Amazon fold. Johnson's re-teaming with his Jumanji franchise director, Jake Kasdan, on the project, and the story details are under wraps, but come on, it's going to be a Santa kind of thing, isn't it? It's going to be Dwayne Johnson as Santa. We know that. Chris Morgan wrote the script, and... Johnson is producing with a wealth of names. Yeah, I'm interested. Great names involved in it. Should be a bit of fun. And Universal Pictures has won a heated auction to reunite with Bourne Supremacy director Paul Greengrass on the adaptation of Stephen King's just published novel, Fairy Tale. We mentioned about it was up for option, but Universal have managed to snap it up. Greengrass has been set to adapt, direct, and produce the film. And as I said a few weeks ago, I'm not completely sold on Greengrass, but his more recent film, News of the World, was it?
0: Yes, it was, which I I adored.
1: Showed me a side of green grass that I didn't think existed. So I'm a bit more interested now. And the film will adapt the story that follows a 17-year-old boy who inherits the keys to a terrifying world where good and evil are at war. Stakes can't be higher for that world and for ours as he journeys into mythic roots of human
0: storytelling. Yeah, I think when we mentioned this last time, I I wasn't familiar with the, the book. I know the book's if not just released, is about to be just released.
1: Yeah, uh, Universal have worked alongside Greengrass before and they gave him a lot of creative freedom so hopefully they'll let him adapt it the way that he wants to adapt it and we'll get the film that we deserve.
0: And, of course, there's been some sad news. Two very, very sad passings, which I think have, uh, have both played into our growing up, Andy. Yeah. First, let's talk about Angela Lansbury. Now, depending how old you are, you'll remember Angela Lansbury from, from one of many many different iconic roles so if it's tv then of course it's murder she wrote where she played for i think it was like nine seasons wasn't it where she played yeah something like that jessica fletcher the the tv's longest standing serial killer 12 seasons 12 seasons was it oh my god Twelve seasons 1984
1: to 1996 she portrayed the role of Jessica Fletcher, (laughs) like you say, the the most notorious serial killer who managed to blame everyone else.
0: (laughs) In her 75 years, she started with a bang when she landed uh, an Oscar nomination for her first role as a Cockney maid, Nancy, in 1944's Gaslight. Then she took a a second nomination for only a third film in 1945's The Picture of Dorian Gray. I think I'll always remember her for... The Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. She played Elvis's mum in Blue Hawaii. And then, of course, for a lot of us, she was in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Yes,
1: Bedknobs and Broomsticks was one that I loved to watch every time it came on TV, usually over at Easter or Christmas period. Absolutely marvellous film. One of those ones of the the crossbreed of animation and live action that Disney were churning out of that era Uh, with some great catchy songs. But then she also provided her voice more recent audiences, and I say more recent, I'm talking 30 years ago, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Yeah, when she voiced uh, Mrs. Potts and sang the song Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, she had a fantastic career. She, she would be known, either by voice or by face, to people of all ages. She's captured the hearts of generations of us and it really is a sad loss
0: absolutely i mean uh, she was still working she was she popped up in mary poppins return she was in nanny McPhee, and of course her stage work in which she won uh, numerous awards especially uh, for especially for collaborations with stephen sondheim absolutely fantastic she for those who know her in film she wasn't recognized enough for a superb singing voice and her daringly quick wit but uh, yes an, an absolute icon of tv stage and cinema And then just a couple of days ago, we had the the sad passing again, depending on when you grew up, the impact that Robbie Coltrane had on on you, how you knew Robbie Coltrane. So uh, for me, it would have been Cracker. For you, it could be... Comic Strip Presents. Comic Strip Presents. Absolutely. I
1: remember tuning into Comic Strip Presents in the 80s and I latched onto all of of that, you know, that's where I got introduced to uh, French and Saunders. I got introduced to Rick Mayall, Aid Ed Edmondson, and, uh, and yeah. then Robbie Coltrane was first introduced to me from there. But, like you say, Cracker really made him a household name, particularly in the UK. Yeah, and he became, you know, we'd seen him in episodes of Blackadder, we'd seen him in so much British TV, but Cracker was the one that really put him on the map for the UK audiences and kind of launched his international career from there. And when he stepped into movies, it was support roles in films such as Goldeneye, that really made people sit up and take notice of him. And then, recent years, everyone now identifies him as one character, and that's Hagrid in the Harry Potter films.
0: Yeah, so, uh, Robbie Coltrane, uh, uh, again, another icon, British icon, uh, passed away age 72. Uh, Yeah, this one felt like a shock. Angela Lansbury, she was 96, 96. so, you know, it's uh, great innings, but... It, it was such a uh, such a shame to see Robbie Coltrane. He was um, yeah. a, a big part of my growing up, as, as we've said, and uh, fantastic screen presence in whatever he was in, whether he was comedy, whether he could do dramatic, superb dramatic work. He turned up in, in stuff like uh, National Treasure. He was uh, small roles in Flash Gordon, Krull, Nuns on the Run. Of course, in GoldenEye that Andy just mentioned, The World is Not Enough. But I think it's Hagrid that most people will, will remember him for.
1: Such a, a, a great character, a great character actor, and a, a great presence in everything. Even in the terrible Van Helsing film, he was worth watching.
0: Yeah. We sadly, sadly missed. And that is this week's The News. If you've been with us for... Ooh, hundreds of episodes now, hundreds, I tell you, (laughs) and you're still not subscribed, then we insist that you still do so. All you have to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform, check out the film file and subscribe, and remember to leave a like. You'll get this delivered every week straight to you, and you can also check out bonus episodes, tonnes and tonnes of news. And if that's not enough, you can find us, well, we're absolutely all over the place, you can find us on radio, on No Barriers Radio every Thursday at 8 o'clock for the Film File Radio Show. And if you want even more, find us online.
1: Yes, uh, pop on over to Twitter. Follow us at Filmfile UK. Find us on other social media platforms. I will eventually do some stuff on there. Uh, just look for Film File UK, and you'll be able to keep up to date with any new content that we drop, so any special episodes or any video clips that are put out on the YouTube channel. Or you can get in touch with us directly via email Send us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk with anything you want to mention about film or maybe you've got a suggestion of a film that you want us to talk about. Maybe it's your favourite film. Maybe it's your least favourite film. We don't care. We will talk about it. We will explore it. We're always open to your suggestions.
0: And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. And we've had a run of this over the last couple of weeks. Yes, in the build-up to Halloween, we're going to be talking about another horror movie. In fact. Not just any old horror movie, but 1982's supernatural horror film, allegedly directed by Toby Hooper, written by Steven Spielberg, Michael Grayce, and Mark Victor, from a story by Steven Spielberg. Yes, it is poltergeist. This could be your house. You drive me nuts. Your family. And something is about to happen to them. They are here. That could happen to you. Poltergeist, it knows where you live, and it knows what scares you. Poltergeist, a Steven Spielberg production. So, directed by Toby Hooper, this is the story of a dream house which turns into an utter nightmare. When evil spirits rise up to torment the family that lives there and possess the soul of their very innocent little girl. This came out when Steven Spielberg was on on an absolute role. He directed and gave the world Indiana Jones. He was about to release E.T. In fact, his work on E.T. meant that he was contractually unable to direct another film. And he brought in Toby Hooper. Spielberg conceived Poltergeist as a horror sequel to his 1977 film Close Encounters. He'd originally written a story called Night Skies, which was a much more of a darker take on the alien story. Hooper apparently was less interested in the sci-fi elements and suggested they collaborate on a ghost story. Many accounts as to the level of Steven Spielberg's involvement. We'll touch upon it, we still don't know the truth, but we'll give it a good guess. But it's clear that he was frequently on set during filming and exerted a significant amount of control. For that reason, some have expressed a view that Steven Spielberg should be considered as the film's co-director, or even, in fact, the main director. But both Spielberg and Hooper, to this day, have disputed it. What makes this film works is the film focusing on a suburban family in a modern neighbourhood where their house is invaded by malevolent spirits. I love this film, Andy. I went to see it at the cinema. This is my kind of a horror film. This is when we talk about big budget horror films not normally having a kick. But this really has a kick.
1: I didn't get to see this at the cinema because I was far too young to go and see a horror film at the cinema. Even though this is kind of almost a family-friendly horror, the one or two gruesome moments such as one of the investigators clawing his face off in the mirror resulted in it getting too high a rating for me to be able to get taken to see it. So I watched this on home release and... It has, like you, it's been one of my favorites throughout my life, one that I go back to very frequently. I've rewatched it in recent weeks in anticipation of us covering it, and I thoroughly enjoyed the experience of watching it again. The, the family aspect, the family da- drama that's in there, that's one of the first things that makes you go, This is Spielberg? Uh, because Spielberg very much delved into that family drama aspect in so many of his films that it had that same kind of feel. It had the jokey feel, it had some good chuckles. And the setup and the build up before Heather O'Rourke's character, Carol Ann, vanishes, taken by these mysterious entities that have opened a dimensional portal or something in the house, is so marvelously paced. There's little teasers of scares, there's little moments, and then it just ramps up significantly. It has to be said that on my recent rewatch, some of the effects work does look a bit dated, particularly when loads of items are spinning around in the room and you just go, mm, yeah, that could maybe do with a, a, a restoration or a touch-up work, but the rest of it still works. The ghostly hand coming out the set yeah. still looks very effective. I love that style of like traditional animation overlaid on things. Yeah. It gives it that ghostly presence. The chills, that just using a tree, the design of a tree, can send shivers down my spine. I was afraid. I used to have a tree outside my window back, back home in Prescott. I had a tree that I was afraid of because I watched this film and I was worried that a tree was going to eat me. That's the impact that it had on my young mind. It's such a great film with such a great cast. And it's the cast of each of the members of the family that really makes it. I mean, Craig T. Nelson as Steve, the head of the household. Yeah. He's, he's the dads that we all aspire to be. He's, you know, he, he's, he's jokey. He's a fun dad. Uh, but, you know, he, he cares about his family. And this is one of the elements that Spielberg always had dysfunctional families. This is the, one of the elements that you go, well, maybe it wasn't Spielberg who directed it because this was a functional family, not a dysfunctional family. Yeah.
0: Joe Beth Williams is great as his wife, Diane. Yes. She brings a sort of everyday mom feel to it. She just feels like a mom character you've met in real life so many times.
1: But it's Heather O'Rourke who, at such an early age, was such a star. Yes. Yeah, you know, her short life made such an impression on the entertainment world. You know, she sadly passed away before the third film got released after co- complications with Crohn's disease. Her death rocked the world. But when she delivers the simple, well, it's almost three words, but one of them is, um, apostrophized, "They're here." She says it in such a chilling way that it really hits you. Yeah. She was absolutely marvellous. You got her sense of terror and peril. And all the way through, when you hearing her voice being distorted through the TV channels, it's chilling. She was a screen legend at such an early age and drew you completely into it. She made it believable. All the cast made it believable.
0: Uh, that's, that's the thing about Poltergeist, which resonates. This takes place for me in my head in another housing estate, not far from where the events of Close Encounters happened. Yeah, and then not far from the housing plot where ET is happening. This is such a recognisable a piece of Americana. This is uh, um, middle class families doing their best, and 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 that's what what I think is the the pure Spielberg element to to Poltergeist. He just captures the family dynamic in a way that he, he, he's done so well in, in, in his other films, Close Encounters and E.T. And therefore, we can't talk about Poltergeist without bringing up the still standing debate whether Spielberg actually directed it.
1: Yeah, I don't think we'll ever get a proper resolution from everyone who's involved because you'd like to think that all the people involved in the production or filming or anything would give a definite answer. But there's so many contrasting points of view. Frank Marshall, the co-producer, said very clearly to the LA Times that the creative force of the movie was Stephen. Toby was the director, was on the set every day, but Stephen did the design for every storyboard. Some reports say that Toby wasn't interested in making the film and would would never respond to any, any, any questions on approach to it. And it'd be Stephen who would say, you approach it like this. So he was kind of directing the cast.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, he said that... Um... Toby isn't a take charge sort of guy. If a question was asked and answer, wasn't immediately forthcoming. Spielberg says he'd jump in and say what we could do, and Toby would nod agreement and become a process of collaboration. There was also the famous Hollywood reporter open letter to Hooper from Spielberg, Mm -hmm. which suggests uh, some of the press has misunderstood the rather unique creative relationship, which you and I shared throughout the making of Poltergeist through the screenplay, you adapted a vision of this very intense movie from the start, and as director, you delivered the goods. You performed responsibly and professionally throughout.
1: But whilst that basically suggests that it was Toby Hooper who did it, we do know that the legalities prevented Spielberg from being able to direct, and so he couldn't admit if he had directed it. Yeah. So he had to have someone else to like say, this person was direct, fully responsible. It was my idea, but he's delivered it. This is not my film. I know that on the promotion of the film that Steven Spielberg was getting a bigger credit which led to more well more legalities and they had to pay Toby Hooper $15,000 because Steven Spielberg it was being promoted as a Steven Spielberg film. But even in recent years after Toby Hooper passed away, director Mick Garris, who was a publicist for the film and who was on set quite frequently said that Toby was always calling action and cut. Toby had been deeply involved in all of the pre-production and everything, but Stephen is a guy who will come in and call the shots. And so you're on your first studio film, hired by Steven Spielberg, who's enthusiastically involved in this movie. Are you going to say, stop that, let me do this? Which Toby did. But he says, like, Toby was a terrific filmmaker. I don't think that it's Stephen was controlling. I think Stephen was enthusiastic and nobody was there to protect Toby. So it, it sounds more like Steven Spielberg was kind of railroading toby into making decisions
0: yeah i mean it's, it's as i said there's there's no one definitive actor zelda rubinstein said that uh hooper allowed some unacceptable chemical agents into his work that during filming toby was only partially there however james Karen, an actor on the on the movie said she laid into toby and i don't know why toby was very kind to her mm. i think we will never know people say that he had a hard time on the film it's tough when a producer is on set every day and there was always a lot of talk about what was considered, but the actors seemed to consider Toby to be the director. Um, you know what? In this case, it doesn't matter because whoever yeah. made the film made a great uh, horror film, a great modern horror film with some lovely twists in the story, bringing the, the ghost story legend up today because it's not an old scary house. It's a modern new house, and I and I thought that was I thought that was terrific.
1: I, I think this is one of those instances where maybe the mix of ideas—one from Stephen, one from, from Toby—and the different approaches that they both made, whilst it could have destroyed the film, it created a perfect storm, and it makes the film instantly likable because of like the the Spielberg elements of like the the suburban family that you can latch onto and the believable family dynamics, but then has Toby Hooper's chilling approach to horror buried within it and it it really is like i say it's a family friendly horror film aside from that one scene with the scraping your face off in a mirror you know that's the one that you'll have to go turn your turn your eyes away kids because that's a bit gruesome but the rest of it you i'd sit and watch this with like you know well my my kids are now grown more or less grown up but when they were younger i would happily sit and watch poltergeist with them because it's that kind of that kind of family-friendly frights. And I think that horror films, you shouldn't protect kids from horror films. No, I You should totally introduce agree. them to them in ways by showing them films like this. Can I do a mention as well for Zelda Rubenstein as Tangina? Yes. What a marvellous addition to the cast. You know, it brings, her approach is fantastic. She's very aloof, but she's also comes out with some great lines of dialogue. I love the line of dialogue in the exchange between her, like Tangina and Diane, where like Tangina's about to like, Tie it around the waist to go into the portal. And like Diane's, like, what do you think you're doing? I'm going in after her. She won't come to you. Let me go. You've never done this before. Neither of you. And then there's a pause, and she goes, "You're right. You go." <laughs> a great character, and it, it gives you the laughs at the right moments to break the tension of a yeah. scene, but without damaging it. And she delivers every bit of those lines in such a memorable way that she's just an iconic character that stands out.
0: And, and even though you've got ILM doing the, the special effects for it, and it is special effects heavy, it is the family that you care for. You care for these characters. You know these characters. You understand them. And Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg instill a, a, a love for, the, for these guys. And, and therefore, you do what a lot of horror movies fail to do, you invest and you like them and so you care for the outcome because you know these families it's a it's a very very straightforward plot and that's not the point its the point is that, is that you care the details of the family it's all set up perfectly and beautifully and it's it's a ghost train ride yeah. it, it never leaves you terrified but it leaves you thrilled at every occasion
1: after the film came out it was a success so obviously sequel was uh, greenlit. I've got some time for this first sequel, Poltergeist Two: The Other Side.
0: Yeah, it's um, it retained the family element, which I liked. I didn't like what they did with Craig T. Nelson. It lacks the scope and the love that's in the first movie. I think what what helps. I
1: mean, what I like from the second one, I love the I love Julian Becker's Kane. I think his yes. chilling presence is what the sequel needed. And one of the lingering questions, if you just watch the first film, is like, how come if the whole estate was built on a graveyard, only this one house was affected? And so the add in the fact that there was actually a cave where Kane's cult, he trapped them in to all die in a mass suicide. And that explained why the presence was underneath that one house and nowhere else on the estate. It also adds in the great Will Sampson as Taylor, who is a marvellous character. And it's, it's just those inclu- little inclusions that kind of compensate for the the kind of, like you say, the misuse of the Steve character played by Craig T. Nelson. It compensates beautifully. And it's a nice way of resolving that one key question that was left hanging at the end of the first film. The third film, however,
0: I've never sadly, seen the third film. I, it I, leaves
1: a lot to be desired. I,
0: I've avoided it. It came out in 1988, that much I know. And we know that it finds Carol Ann as a sole original family member now living in an elaborate Chicago skyscraper, owned and inhabited by her aunt, uncle and cousin. And yeah. Kane follows them there and uses the buildings, decorative mirrors as a portal to the earthly plane.
1: The use of the mirrors is, it's quite clever at times, but that's the only clever thing in the whole film. Taking Carol Ann away from her main family was a bad move because it's that family dynamic. And I know it's given you with aunties and uncles, but that's not the same relationship and it lost the heart, it lost the soul of it. It was while filming the third third film that Heather O'Rourke sadly passed away. It was a shame, because we'd seen her career progress. She'd had appearances in a few other things, but in Poltergeist, she showed the signs of a true rising star on screen, and it's a star that we'll never see um, lit up. There's been a remake of Poltergeist in recent years. It's best forgotten.
0: Yeah, even though it does star Sam Rockwell. Uh, And Rosemary Witt. great cast. Jared Harris is in there, produced by Sam Raimi. Got a couple of interesting elements, but but generally, generally, absolutely no reason for it at all. Shouldn't exist. Not
1: at all. Uh, But the original film is still one that you should check out
0: and find
1: and track down and get it watched. It holds up well today. It still has the same charm, still has the same scares, and still absolutely makes me terrified of trees outside my
0: house. Andy, if we want to see Poltergeist, where can we find it?
1: Uh, It's not available for free on any streaming service at the moment. Um, If you do a search, you'll find the remake. Don't watch it. So why not either rent it or just buy it? Buy the Blu-ray set, Blu-ray that you can get. It's a beautiful film to own in your collection. Deserves on everyone's shelf.
0: We'll be back next week with another Halloween-themed deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy, as ever, has been doing the Lord's work going forward into a world of mystery and the unknown. Is it going to be any good? Is it going to be a piece of rot? I leave that up to Andy because he's a braver man than I am. What do we got this week, Andy? I know you've got a couple of films that actually I really, really want to see.
1: Uh, well, we'll start with Halloween Ends.
0: As I said, you've got a couple of films that I really want to see. And then you've got Halloween Ends. It's Halloween. We're going to have a good time tonight. <laughs>
1: Time to put the boogeyman to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Halloween Man. Over the four years since the end of the last film, Halloween Kills, the town of Haddonfield has lived in the shadow of the terrible events of that night. The myth of Michael Myers permeates the town's consciousness, and with his name being uttered in hushed whispers whenever anything goes wrong. During that time, the town also gained another notorious name to add to its killer list that of Corey Cunningham, played by Rowan Campbell, a babysitter who accidentally killed the child he was watching. But as the fourth anniversary of Michael's last appearance approaches, events play out that draw Corey, Laurie, Alison, Laurie's granddaughter, and indeed Michael together for one bloody showdown. From the start, this film lost me. There's an opening scene that starts poorly with an illogical jump scare that sees a kid somehow leaping out from a plain wall. Yes, the camera angle makes it a jump scare for us, the audience, but for his mother, who has stood right there, it made no sense. This level of dodgy contrivance and continuity ignorance then continued when a death that should have been powerful and shocking is executed in such a manner that the audience that I watched it with all laughed out loud. A fall from a large height that seems to ignore a banister that would have blocked the fall. Again, some continuity editor should have picked up on this and maybe suggested damaging the banister. From that point onwards, it was clear that this was not going to be a film I was going to enjoy. And that proved to be the case. This is less of a Halloween film. The story tries to play on the idea that the town itself creates monsters and is corrupt within itself. But it does this so poorly that any and all impact is gone. For the first half of the film, the entire cast are bland stereotypes. It's not always a bad thing in horror, and indeed many slasher movies have fun with these templates. But this film actually seems to think it's more serious than it actually is. Jamie Lee Curtis is dreadful for the first half. She's seemingly phoning the part in, and the character of Laurie that we were presented with in the previous films has been all but erased. In the latter half, she comes alive again, and we see something of what we could have had all along, but it's too late to salvage the film. There's a huge focus on Corey throughout, and it feels like a script from another project was reverse-engineered to tag Michael Myers into it. And given it was supposed to be the final chapter of his tale, having him be little more than a minor support up until the final moments seems like a bit of a bait and switch. Whilst Corey's journey was interesting on the surface level, it isn't really given breathing space as halfway through the film it appears that David Gordon Green suddenly remembered he was supposed to be directing a Halloween film and fast-tracks everything from that point. Thus, Corey's character changes suddenly and unconvincingly, whilst at the same time the relationship he has with Allison feels flat. It lacks any chemistry at all. As the final act came around, the film chugs to a limp ending that only made me more happy that finally this franchise can be laid to rest. Much in the same way that the Star Wars sequels felt disjointed, with events of each episode seemingly inconsequential to the one before or after, so too is this recent Halloween trilogy. However, unlike Star Wars, this trilogy was delivered by the same director, and when reflecting on how much of a mess kills and ends were, it only makes me further believe that there was never any intention to make another film after 2018's entry, which does, admittedly, stand up quite well as a final entry in the saga itself. No doubt, five to ten years from now, we'll get another new timeline for the Halloween franchise. But in the meantime, I'm simply happy it has finally ended.
0: I was going to join you for this one, but uh, circumstances meant that I couldn't. It, It wasn't really a missed opportunity because I've not seen any of this particular run. On Halloween, so it's probably for the best that I, I didn't join you. By the sounds of things, if I'm going to watch any of the Halloween movies, uh, would you recommend seeing the first one of this trilogy?
1: Yes, I'd say that the first one. I didn't appreciate the first time I watched it, but on my recent rewatch, I appreciated it more. We'll talk about this more next week because I think next week on the deep dive, we'll we'll explore the Halloween franchise as a whole, and I'll pick out from my rewatch which ones I think are worth people revisiting.
0: And now you've got a film that I am really intrigued about. I know of the book. I've never read it, but uh, I also like the director because I, I quite like girls. Tell me this is good. Please, Andy, tell me this is good.
1: So this will be Catherine called Birdie.
0: You're my only daughter. If I say that you should be married, then married you should be.
1: Would I choose to die rather than be forced to marry? I do not think either option appealing. Oh, oh no, no. No. You don't get to decide who we are. While- because we're not saints, they're people! I wish I could help every girl in the world. But for now, I am a nurse. Bella Ramsey is the daughter of a financially destitute lord in medieval England, who's determined to defy her father's wishes for her to marry. As suitor after suitor are presented, she puts them off one by one, until she encounters one so vile that nothing she tries seems to work in this charmingly witty coming-of-age tale. Stacked with a solid pack of cast, Bella Ramsey charms throughout with an Enola Holmes-esque interaction with the audience via voiceovers. Billy Piper plays her mother. David Bradley, Leslie Sharp, Russell Brand, Ralph Inneson all play their parts well, no matter how fleeting or minor, and they all bring something fun to the affair. But there are two names that rarely stand out amongst the cast. Paul Kay. As the gross shaggy beard, the foul suitor matched up to Ramsey's Lady Catherine, playing very much to loathsome type. This is the type of role that Kay is perfect for, and he relishes every opportunity to chew the scenery around him. And then we have the magnificent Andrew Scott as Lord Rollo, desperate for his daughter to wed into wealth. He doesn't really seem to be much of a father throughout, with barely any knowledge of his daughter. And Scott soaks up this role with a flamboyance, yet slightly withdrawn nature that steals the moments that he's on screen. Lena Dunham writes and directs and makes this period set piece feel very relevant and modern at the same time. It's a wonderful tale and it's a fine way to spend just over 100 minutes.
0: Yeah, want to see that. And I think she's great. I think Bella Ramsey's great. Can't wait, of course, to see her in The Last of Us TV series. Yes. And finally...
1: Finally, X Ty West's horror. Which I didn't know had landed.
0: I didn't yeah. know. Hollywood, here we go. I so just this is it! Our own studio back. You're looking for a place to stay. Oh well, yes, sir. That's one ugly song, bitch. And my wife,
1: Pearl, is next door, so I would appreciate a little discretion. I
0: just wanted- My wife is not well. well Set in
1: 1979, X tells the tale of a cast and crew who gather to make a pornographic film on an elderly couple's property in Texas, only to find that a very unlikely killer awaits them. Ty West's horror really captures the dirty side of the industry it's set around, as well as tapping into the 70s era of horror in structure, looks and tone. It showcases his skill at setup and delivering on kills on a low budget, and the film builds marvellously as it transforms from soft porn to bloody splatter with smooth style. All of this is aided by the cast, with the young cast desperate for fame so much that porn is the option they go for, all inhabited by actors who ensure that there's an underlying sadness to them, no matter how happy they seem on the outside. But then, amongst them, you have Mia Goth in the dual role of the young starlet Maxine, and the elderly house inhabitant Pearl. Through Pearl, she gets to show a character reflecting on life choices that led her to now, regrets, and desire to feel young again. And Goth sells it so much under the prosthetics that you don't even realise it's the same actress. With X, A24 and Ty West have delivered a fresh horror that draws upon the films of yesteryear for inspiration, but deftly plays out in a manner that feels new. Impressively made on a stunningly low budget of only £1 it far outshines many higher-priced offerings of recent years. With Pearl due for release and a third film in development, this feels like a story that I want to delve more into.
0: Okay, so that's this week's reviews. Andy, what's coming up at the cinema and on streaming and on TV? over the next week
1: so we spoke about it today but poltergeist is got its 40th anniversary re-release in the uk this week so that's where you could see it check out your local cinema listings find a cinema that's showing poltergeist go and see it on the big screen where it belongs if you don't want to watch that you've got my policeman which is the harry styles film apparently he can act in this one yes we'll find out when we see it but then there's the two films that i've mostly got my eye on Obviously, Black Adam, I'm a big superhero geek. I want to see what this superhero does on the big, big screen. And then the film that I am most looking forward to this week, Banshees of Inner
0: I'll be there with you.
1: Over on streaming, now TV and Sky has Uma, which um, I missed it when it had its limited cinema release earlier this year, so get a chance to watch that. Over on Netflix, we've got The School for Good and Evil, which sees two best friends find their loyalty put to the test when they go to a magical school for fairy tale heroes and villains, only to find themselves in different camps. And The Stranger, which is Joel Edgerton and Sean Harris in a crime thriller where a small circle of undercover cops pose as vast and influential criminal networks to catch a murderer. Um, Over on Amazon, there's a TV series based on William Gibson's The Peripheral, which opens with Chloe Grace Moretz. Looks quite good. I do like some Gibson storytelling, so I'm hoping they deliver on this one. It's all about alternate realities and dark future of the reality that you live in. And also Argentina 1985, which is based on the true story of public prosecutors who investigated and prosecuted Argentina's bloodiest dictatorship. So that's quite a solid week of uh, stuff on streaming. Hopefully I'll find time to catch up on all those
0: shows that I mentioned earlier. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm doing that, that catch up. I, I, I'm getting through Andor. I'm getting through Sand. There's a couple of new shows just popped up that I'm investing in. So blimey, I'm catching up. think that's about it for this week Andy I I think think it's action-packed but we you know we can't go can't go yet without talking about our neat things yes our neat things stuff that we've watched seen a enjoyed it you name it as long as we've had a good time with it it's our neat thing Andy have you got a neat thing for me this week
1: I mean let's be honest you're probably surprised that I've not had this as a neat thing for every week while it's been running on Amazon rings of power came to an end
0: I've still not seen it
1: it finished with an epic finale that tied up a lot of the hanging questions that they started to introduce early in the season and set things up for what the next season's going to be without feeling like it was a cliffhanger ending. It's just set things up whilst resolving this season. This has been a series that, as a Tolkien fan, yes, there's changes from the established law from Tolkien, but what you have to realise that even the established law of Tolkien even Tolkien didn't necessarily stick to because he had multiple writings which contradicted itself from time to time. So if you went in and just accepted it as a representation, in the same way that as comic book fans, as Marvel fans, we watch the films and they change things, but you need to accept it that it's an artistic change for the better. You can watch Rings of Power and follow the slow build of multiple threads of characters in an epic storytelling environment. And I have loved every moment of it. I've loved the design of it. I've loved the music. I've loved the law building. And I've loved the characters. Both established characters that we already know like Elrond and Gladriel. Gladriel played by the excellent Morford Clark who everyone should absolutely worship the ground that she walks on after she gave us uh, Saint Maud last year. Uh, To the newer characters that have been created just for the series. There's so much in this show that just captured me and captivated me and drew me through it. And as the final episode of the season played out, we finally got the first rings of power were forged. Things are starting to build up. I can't wait for season two. This is going to be five seasons. If you go through with the whole five seasons, this is going to be five seasons that will work as epically as Peter Jackson's brilliant trilogy, because we forget that The Hobbit ever got made. His brilliant trilogy. <laughs> it's just been a joy to watch. And it's felt like it really sits nicely alongside Peter Jackson's films.
0: So, guys, you know what to do: buy more toilet roll on Amazon, and you will get all five seasons. Amazon have got <laughs> all the money. I wouldn't worry. I think it's. I thought you were doing a ring of powers. Just <laughs> <down> <laughs> with the toilet roll. <laughs> leave it in. Um, I'm going going somewhere else. Um, we have talked a little bit about our sort of politics on the show. And we're not a political show, and we are an open church. But the last week. Oh, the last couple of weeks in, in British uh, government has been tumultuous. It has been incredible. We are living through the most bizarre of days right now. Whatever side of the political fence you're on, this is not the norm that we are going through. And to try and make sense of it is has been a bit of a head scratcher. And I've drifted over to a YouTube channel now. I don't want to get into politics. It's Helped enlighten me as to some of the sort of the political diatribe that's going on right now, uh, and it's a lot of fun, and it's it's uh, it's very well done, and it's a YouTube channel called A Different Bias, presented by a chap called uh, Phil Morehouse, and he offers a very left centric point of view of politics, but a very sensible point of view as well, a kind of a uh, kind of breaking through political discourse in a very common sense kind of way no matter what the politics are he spells things out in a in a kind of every man every man kind of way and it can be quite uh enlightening often can be quite humorous uh but always leaves you wanting to do a little bit more deep diving and digging into the stories than probably did at the beginning just to get uh uh, the full picture now as i say politics are is you know we don't we never really want to bring it into the show but sometimes you can't touch on it but if you are interested in knowing a little bit more about what's going on in the world right now i highly recommend a different bias don't dislike it as that's not your politics because hey we're all open to debate and discussion but if you if you're intrigued check it out. It's it's a it's a good little 15 minutes. I have a tendency to have it on when I'm uh, doing the washing up or doing the cooking because I, I just like to listen to know. I just like to know what's going on in the world at the moment because I'm telling you what, you couldn't make it up right now. <laughs> uh, so that's a different bias. It's on YouTube and it literally is daily. Well worth checking out. And that folks is it for this week. Didn't think at one point we are going to make it through Andy but we got here we to got the it. end.
1: Um, I I shall let you uh, get some rest now. Yes. uh, Recuperate. Um, I've got a wedding to go to next week, so uh, it's going to be an interesting recording session next week, so I don't know how it's also going to be when I get back on the Sunday.
0: We will figure it out, because it's all (laughs) about bringing you Film Geekery every week. And Andy, you left the bodies. You only moved the headstones. Of The Film File. The film show four pod, keep, pod keeps the film show. So again. four film geeks.
1: <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> it's the
0: film file, the film show for four film. All right, I'll start again.